0: Uh, Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 216 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And today's episode, we're going to have an interview with Tom Fox about his new compliance handbook. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, it's great to uh, be back to you, and I'm glad to have Tom Fox back with me uh, as well to discuss uh, today the new compliance handbook. His second edition, which I think is a, a must have for everybody. Um, and uh, before we get started, though, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance.
1: Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steele's Ethics and Compliance Automated Platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy, Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding and how your compliance program applies to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steele's Compliance Solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000.
0: Well, I'm here today with uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Tom Fox. Uh, Tom, always good to see you. Uh, The Compliance Evangelist and the voice of compliance. Uh, Great to be with you today.
2: Mike, thanks, and uh, great to be back.
0: So, uh, Tom, I uh, I wanted first to congratulate you on the compliance handbook second edition, uh, which I know you worked very hard on. I remember how hard you worked on the first edition, and what would you, and you know, what sort of motivated you at this time uh, to put together a second edition uh, to update the first.
2: So Mike, the first edition came out in uh, June of or May or June of uh, 2018. And uh, as you know, uh, starting in 2019, we had some major announcements from the Department of Justice and uh, the Department of Treasury around compliance programs. So in 2019, we had OFAC's um, compliance program release, uh, which came out in July of 2019. The uh, the division, as you would say, uh, the, uh, yeah. the Department of Justice's antitrust. antitrust Division came out with a um, compliance, uh, their version of a best practices compliance program and uh, what they call the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs for Antitrust Compliance. Uh, we also had the Department of Justice release the Fraud Division, uh, the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs which gave us really uh, some very significant guidance around how the Department of Justice viewed compliance programs and the questions they would pose to any company that was in the middle of an FCPA investigation. In the midst of the pandemic, the early part of the pandemic in June of 2020, the Department of Justice Fraud Section updated uh, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs with a document entitled Appropriately Update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And then in July of 2020, we had the second edition to the FCPA Resource Guide, which is, in my opinion, the single best one volume from the government on all things FCPA. This is a joint DOJ-SEC document, but it incorporated uh, new enforcement actions, uh, a wider variety of hypothetical questions, and uh, anonymized um declinations from the department of justice so i thought that we really had uh, and then of course we had um uh, some enforcement actions under the new um fcpa corporate enforcement policy which was announced in late november of 2017 so we had a fair number of enforcement actions we had a significant release of information from the government and uh, evolution in compliance that I thought, around innovation particularly, that I thought warranted an update. And then uh, independent of that, I was contacted by LexisNexis, the world's top legal publisher. And they uh, wanted to start a a compliance component to their publishing and uh, asked me um, if I'd be interested in, in signing on with them. And I said I was, and I did. And so I had uh, a new publisher, uh, literally the top publisher uh, in in legal, and now uh, I think in compliance uh, publishing the book. So it sort of all seemed to to come together, Mike, uh, to warrant an update, which was released in June of this year,
0: 2021. Well, I I think for sure, given all the developments that you talked about, um, not to say that you're going to have a third edition, but you know, several years from now, I mean, compliance is moving quickly. So this is a great timing for the update because there was so much that occurred after the first edition and now can be captured in the second edition. One other point that I think is really important here, Tom, is, I mean, look, you know, I always say, uh, my writing and podcasts and everything that I do is for sort of a narrow community of legal and compliance officers but I think this book uh, goes for more than that. Um, I think this book provides insights that are needed for by business executives because they are ultimately responsible for compliance and other non-compliance professionals Uh, and what do you see um, you know, how do you see others besides our known colleagues in legal and compliance using this book?
2: So, Mike, although it's uh, certainly written for the compliance professional in mind, I really uh, also try to put chapters in for other business executives and non-compliance professionals who read this book. So the structure allows you to see the basics of a compliance program for instance, AML compliance, export control compliance, antitrust compliance, HR compliance, a wide variety of compliance um, uh, requ- requirements and disciplines. But also, uh, there's chapters on innovation. There's chapters on uh, business venture partners. There's chapters on the role of the board. There's chapters on the role of HR in compliance and leadership. So, uh it's written for a wide variety of business professionals, including business executives, who I think can get a lot out of it. Or if the business executive wants to give a gift to their chief compliance officer, I would certainly advocate this would be an appropriate gift.
0: There you go. And we are coming up on the holiday season. So, and not only that, we know there's an exception that it would always be in compliance with any gift policy that a company might have. We know that. Um, by definition right (laughs) yeah Um, so let's talk about a couple of ideas and uh, Tom in here you uh, have one of my favorites uh, that you emphasize and have always talked about which is um, uh, the growing sort of body of evidence that robust and effective compliance programs make a company profitable or, and in a sustainable way over the long run, uh, and and I think that's an important part of setting up the importance of each of the chapters in the book. Uh, but at least it, you're upfront about what the perspective is that you bring to this, which is which is evidence-based. It's an evidence-based uh, outline and handbook that can. Um, can uh, help companies be more effective.
2: So, Mike, I uh, certainly advocate and I believe the research that I've been able to do uh, bears out the fruit that a more effective compliance program equates to more efficient business process, equates to greater ROI and greater profitability. So, um, now that's really on the tactical level. So if you have a more efficient third-party risk management process that allows you to identify third-party risk earlier and then put a risk management strategy around this, this may allow you to uh, uh, engage with a business venture partner more quickly or more robustly. It may allow you to move into a high-risk geographic area or with a high-risk product or with a high-risk company in a way that your competitors uh, can't or won't. Uh, The same is true uh, as well with your own employee base. You can identify risks more quickly and move to manage those risks, i.e. prevent them before something happens and then you're in the detect mode because through continuous improvement uh, or continuous monitoring, you lead to continuous improvement. So the Uh, I think it's clear that more effective compliance uh, does uh, make you a more profitable company, but it also makes you a more attractive business partner. So if I'm a vendor and um, if I'm Tom Fox Fox Energy Company and I want to do work with one of the service companies and I have a best practices robust compliance program, that's going to be seen as a business plus. And it may open the doors for me, uh, to work with companies, to be a vendor, or even to be a, a, a consumer of products. Banks, for instance, they want to do business with me if I have a robust AML program uh, that I can show them, in, in. whether that's lending me money, whether that's uh, creating a, a financing vehicle or a financing center, or whether it's simply to open a, a checking account. But let me pick up on uh, one word you used in that last question, which I think has really subsumed all of this and that's sustainable. Um, ESG has become um, one of the most ubiquitous terms of 2021 and it's not become ubiquitous because the government has said, you Mr. Businessman must have an ESG policy. It's become ubiquitous because the investor community has said we see the financial value in having a sustainable company. The uh, private equity uh, market, the venture capital funds, uh, banks are lending to ESG positive companies. Um, Insurance companies are taking that into account when they insure you. Yet another risk management strategy, uh, but they want to see sustainable. They want to see documented sustainable, and they want to see, the results of your sustainable that you've made a part of your public record if you're a you know publicly held company. So uh, all of the things that I had been advocating for uh, some time around best practices, compliance programs, I think have been put on steroids with the sustainability uh, under uh, ESG. And now the investor class has taken notice and, They see greater profitability, and if they didn't see greater profitability, they wouldn't be pushing this as hard. And uh, I think they far outstripped whatever the regulators have thought we need to be doing, uh, whatever government uh, is in in place or administration is in place at the time, Mike.
0: Yeah, I think the business community, the investor community, and sort of the the transformation in terms of stakeholder demands – what the public wants from their companies, what the how you know investors want to believe in the mission uh, of the company, and they know that over the long run, a, a company that adheres to ethics and compliance is going to be more profitable over the long run. I think we're on the midst of seeing the transformation from you know the quarter focus analysis, you know how do we do this quarter, how do we do next quarter. I think investors are saying, look, that's that's great. But we want to know over the long run, what's your plan for uh, growing the company? Because in the long run, we want to see um, sustainable growth without uh, as with reduction in risk. And that to me seems like we're on the on the throes, I think, of something big here in terms of that sustainability. The other point that I think you make, Tom, in this uh Uh, sort of focus of yours in this book, which I think is really important, is that, you know, your return on investment no longer is compliance, ethics and compliance, a cost center. If anything, now you're saying that it becomes such an important part of the business integral to the business that it contributes to the overall profitability and functioning of the business. Um, And so that's sort of old mindset when trying to get a budget through uh, for ethics and compliance. It's not just a cost center. There is return on this investment. And I think the sort of forward thinking leaders uh, in the business community get that. And I think the old line of thinking uh, is not going to work in the face of these investor demands. ESG is a bigger concept. Uh, You know, I always remind people there is a G in there for governance, which encapsulates ethics and compliance as well as board performance. Uh, And I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, And I want to go back to uh, another really important point, I think, from your book here and uh, the concept of operationalizing a compliance program and get your thoughts on this, where there's a change in the mindset that you know ethics and compliance is just, just solely the responsibility of the compliance team. And in your book, you explore the role of a vast range of professionals and business people who have compliance responsibility. Compliance officers, board of directors, human resources, internal audit, internal controls, communications, training professionals. And ultimately, the business. So what are, as you sort of looked at this, and and this is why this is a book that everybody should read uh, and everybody should use, is what are some of the strategies that you think to take what are traditionally thought of as separate functions, but bring them together to operationalize the compliance program?
2: That's a great point, Mike. Um, You and I started in this era when uh, compliance officers were Dr. No from the land of No, and compliance programs consisted of policies written by lawyers for lawyers. Fortunately, we have evolved far past that, and compliance now is seen properly, I believe, as a business process. And as a business process, Uh, You're going to have to tap into a wide and disparate uh, other other talents within your corporate corporation and corporate functions. The Department of Justice, I think, has really led the way on, on this in the 2021 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs when they said that your chief compliance officer must have visibility across all data silos within the company, and if not, you're going to be in big trouble. Well, when you have visibility across those data silos, it gives you the ability to analyze and see things that perhaps others who don't have that greater visibility uh, can see so that you can make process improvements, which can lead to this greater profitability. The other thing the DOJ said was the chief compliance officer is the keeper of the institutional justice and institutional fairness flame in an organization. So this put a a level of scrutiny on uh, CCOs that perhaps they had not thought they had before and this has uh, significant HR implications. Obviously this is dead center of how you treat your employees and now compliance uh, is the keeper of that flame. So you immediately see the, the compliance officer must have this overall big picture view that allows you to do greater analysis it, uh, you're also required to have a broader view of compliance. It's not simply do business ethically and don't violate the FCPA. It's institutional justice and institutional fairness. That's how you treat your employees from literally the uh, pre-hire uh, intake process, uh, interviews, hiring, uh, termination, uh, if, if, if required. So the chief compliance officer uh, can't do all of that on their own. And you have to engage others within the organization. You have to engage other corporate disciplines uh, to have not only a best practice compliance program, but all of these additional requirements as well. So compliance, the chief compliance officer is, is gonna be the linchpin to all that. And what you and I thought of as compliance 15 years ago, I think Mike has greatly expanded. And uh, I I have to credit the Department of Justice for really leading this effort, but It's been the compliance community who have filled in the gaps on how to do this. So, um, uh, yes, the compliance professional must engage with a wide variety of not only other stakeholders, but other corporate functions, talents and
0: disciplines. Yeah, that's definitely true. And what what we're seeing now is, you know, a chief compliance officer is not just a lawyer or a non-lawyer. Uh, a compliance professional, they tend to have expertise in other areas as well, or they develop expertise. Now we're seeing data analytics come into it. Now we're seeing other functions, other capabilities, stati- you know, st- statisticians, whatever, all of these things that come into helping and supporting the compliance function. It's a broad range, and it's just because of the what you've talked about in terms of Uh, the mandate has become broader, and the responsibilities have have become broader. I always remember, uh, you know, the head of uh, one company when doing an assessment, and the head of the business in China said to me, look, if I don't do compliance, nobody will do it. And he said, it's my responsibility. That's part of my job, which is, and you can't have a compliance officer in every, you know, uh, office, every situation. Uh, the business has to own it, and what you're talking about is operationalizing this through every every part of the company, in a sense, uh, and the strategies that you've included here are ways to bring, you know, this uh, objective of operationalizing a compliance program to fruition. So I, I really commend, you know, your focus on that because I think that's what people need to focus on right now. Um, so uh let me turn to one other issue though that I thought uh you know is really important uh in terms of uh and you use this term throughout the book which is uh, conduct at the top it sounds like tone at the top uh and and you know I'm not a big fan of that uh neither are you in terms of the tone at the top uh phraseology and you point out and frankly You bring this into your discussion of operationalizing a program in the book, uh, Tom, uh, in terms of the distinction of conduct at the top versus tone at the top, and can you explain the importance of that term uh, in terms of your operationalizing a compliance program? Sure, Mike. So,
2: obviously, you have to have a CEO who's committed to doing business ethically and in compliance. And if you have Ken Lay or someone of that ilk, uh, we all know where those those companies ended. So, um, But it's really more than simply having the right tone. You actually have to do compliance. So, Barclays, former CEO, Jess Staley, for instance, uh, ordered... Uh, The security department of Barclays unmask a whistleblower uh, who had reported on a corporate executive who happened to be one of Staley's friends. Well, what message does that send? Uh, And that whistleblower was anonymous. What message does that send? That sends the message that uh, there is no anonymous whistleblowing and I am coming to get you. Uh, So if you, you have to have a CEO who's fully committed, you have to have them following the policies and procedures, and you have to have them. Turning down businesses or business ventures or things that are frankly too risky. Uh, If a problem comes up, you you support the remediation of that problem. You support the uh, financing of the corporate compliance function. It's a wide variety of things, and people see how a CEO acts. They see how senior execs act, and if they see a CEO literally trying to unmask an anonymous whistleblower, they'll pretty. clearly and quickly get the message, hey, this guy, he sure doesn't uh, walk the walk, uh, even if he does talk the talk. So you have to uh, show through your conduct, not not simply your words, that we're going to do business ethically and in compliance.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great way of stating it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, words are empty in the end. Uh, people want to see the conduct that backs it up. Uh, I I agree with that. Um, Okay, uh, another issue that we and we know that this issue is always uh, at the forefront of every FCPA violation. And we all know that third party risk management uh, is uh, critical. um, And, uh, you know, finally, we're seeing I think more and more companies uh, implementing uh, automated solutions, which is great. Um, but why do you, but we're, we're still seeing, um, you know, companies struggling with, uh, risk-based approaches to third-party due diligence, uh, implementing effective third-party anti-corruption programs, as well as sanctions, uh, compliance programs because of the risks that are involved in sanctions issues with third parties as well. But, you know, uh, and I, I know that you're, you, you spend a good deal of time in the book discussing this. And what is, it, what is it that you think needs to be done for companies to finally get their arms around this issue?
2: Well, there was a really interesting lawsuit filed last week, Mike, uh, by a woman named uh, Shaquala Williams against uh, J.P. Morgan. And the basis of the suit was uh, whistleblower retaliation. And in the lawsuit, she listed several deficiencies that she brought to management, or alleged deficiencies that she brought to management, uh, and which were not remedied. And interestingly, Mike, they, they really turned around. There was a compliance program in place. They were looking at third parties, but certain categories of third parties could be approved without going through the process with no documentation as the reason. Um, information on high-risk third parties was not communicated to the business units. So we had siloed information and and that the risks that the third party group was assigned to assess and manage was not going up to senior management so that they could uh, put that into a broader risk assessment of who and how the company was going to do business. And once again, these are allegations. We don't know if they're true. But I thought it was a a really instructive way to think about how even with a very robust third-party due diligence program, if you don't use that information, if you don't use that information up the chain to senior management so that helps them assess overall risks, down the chain to the business development folks uh, basically saying, you know, we can't do business with this person, and then you have a whole set of third parties – who come in basically when controls are overridden, but without documentation to that control, you're, you're having a disconnect in your compliance program. And so they really, you have to think about, we've got disparate sources of information. How do you, as Mr. Chief Compliance Officer or Ms. Compliance Function, how do you get that information into the hands of the decision makers? And if there is a risk, how do you best manage that risk? What risk management strategies are you going to put around it?
0: Yeah, I, th- I I agree with you. I think there have been sort of automated platforms to uncover risks. And now the idea is, okay, assuming we have risk information, how do we get it to the client? Uh, how do we get it to the business? But then how do we implement a strategy to mitigate the risk? And usually with high risk, that means some kind of regular monitoring procedure protocol that has to be put into place and that is where you know the rubber meets the road in terms of this from my from my perspective but I'm I'm glad you sort of have have brought sort of fresh eyes to this issue because it's still a significant issue for many many companies I think um one other issue that I you know near and dear to my heart Tom you devoted an entire chapter to the topic of internal controls, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting here and issues here, and people like sort of glaze over you say, but uh you know when we bring up internal controls, but really they're the same as policies and procedures in the sense that they all eventually lead to some kind of internal control to manage a risk uh consistent with your policies and procedures so What are, like, some examples of internal controls? I'm glad you have a whole chapter on this because I think every business and compliance uh, professional, every business person needs to understand what internal controls are and why they're critically important to the success of the company and the compliance program. So I turn it over to you on that.
2: Yeah, Mike. So I view internal controls as really the backbone of your compliance program. And the first time I read the COSO 2013 Internal Controls Framework, uh, I just had a complete revelation. And the revelation was, these are compliance controls. But guess what? They weren't. They were COSO Internal Controls to satisfy SOX 404, meaning they were financial controls. Well, that was one of the aha moments for me to understand that compliance controls, Mike, are essentially uh, financial controls. You cannot run a multinational, multibillion-dollar corporation without robust internal financial controls. Almost 90% of the controls for the compliance professional are financial controls, i.e., they're already in place. You're just not calling them a compliance control. And the example I, I use that everyone understands is employee travel reimbursement. Every company has it. Um, and that has a series of controls all the way from attaching receipts to the employee signing the form to it going to their manager for approval to going to accounts payable for um, review and approval and then spot checks on uh, information uh, contained in the report going forward. Well, if you're traveling overseas, Mike, guess what? That's a compliance control um right. and right. if it if it's a meeting with a customer prospective business customer what's the only additional piece of information that turns that financial control into compliance control it's not name because that's required it is title and position and that tells the compliance professional oh we're dealing with a government official uh executive at a state owned enterprise or other uh, entity that uh, could uh be uh, subject to FCPA scrutiny. So the controls you already have, if you look at them in a different light, are gonna be compliance controls. And those compliance controls allow you to uh, move information through your corporate database in a way that doesn't require oversight. So that if a compliance control is met, then it moves to the next level course the documentation is there It can be audited if there is a control override and nothing wrong with a control override but you have a have a business justification so just as the example I used in the allegations in the Shaquala Williams lawsuit against JP Morgan uh, can you approve intermediaries or other third parties to do business with your company uh, outside of your standard process answer yes you absolutely could do so, but you have to have a documented business justification from an appropriate level of management uh, to justify why you're doing this. And then if it puts additional risk on your company, you have uh, to put additional risk management strategies in place, and you document that so that if something does happen, you show, hey, we looked at this, we considered it, uh, we allowed it to go forward, and we managed it in this way. So um, that is really the very veritable backbone of every compliance program. It's the back of the house, behind the scenes, and the whole system doesn't work if you don't have internal controls. And guess what? At the end of the day, if you're a public company and you don't have compliance controls, you're probably in violation of SOX 404.
0: Correct. you probably got material weaknesses that have to be disclosed at that point. So... Uh, Well, Tom, look, this has been fantastic. Uh, Thanks for the overview. We didn't get to many other topics that are covered in this book, uh, because, uh, you know, from my perspective, this is absolutely the single best volume out there that anybody can read on how you design, uh, implement, uh, monitor, test everything that you need to do to uh, put in place uh, an effective ethics and compliance program. So congratulations again to you, Tom, on this. I know it's been a lot of work, but I I know it's also for you a labor of love. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just want to say thanks again for taking the time to discuss it, but also uh, thanks for your voice as the compliance evangelist. Uh, you provide a lot of support to all of us out there who are, you know, um, promoting these types of issues. And your book, I think, is just a perfect uh, natural fit in terms of, you know, what you do every day. So thank you again for that. Uh, and I well, would uh, also... if you
2: really want to thank you, Mike. You could, you could buy about 10 copies of the
0: book. <laughs> a 10 copy. And wait a minute. I want an autographed copy, Tom. You know that I need an autographed uh, copy. I can, but if I can arrange that. You could, I know you can. Um, But if people want to um, to get more information and to purchase the book, um, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and do that?
2: So it's it's very easy, Mike. LexisNexis.com backslash Fox will take you directly to the um, uh, uh, sales portal on LexisNexis. You can purchase it there.
0: Fantastic. And Tom, if people want to reach you just on your email or whatever the best way to contact you is again.
2: Sure. So you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. That's tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can uh, give me a shout on the phone at 832 744 0264. Or you can go to my website, compliancepodcastnetwork.net. And there's a very cool app that allows you. It's called SpeakPipe, which allows you to leave a video or an audio message. So uh, you can contact me through the website, and I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, You can contact me through LinkedIn. I'd love to continue the dialogue or uh, help you out any way I could.
0: All right, Tom, thanks again and congratulations again. And we'll be in touch uh, and get you back here on the podcast again. Thanks again.
2: My pleasure, Mike. Thanks.
1: and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.
3: Standing in line, marking time, waiting for the welfare done. they can't buy a job. It catches the poor old lady's eyes. Just for funny sips, get a job. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way. the way